Hi there, welcome back. Let's find something interesting. <laughs> Grimes says Elon Musk evaded being served with child custody papers at least 12 times. <laughs> <coughs> That's funny. Oh. oh. So he doesn't want to be a father, eh? Wonder why he doesn't want to be a father so badly. Just like hates to avoid or hates any responsibility. Let's check out Gaia. Let's see what Gaia has to say about Antarctica. Gaia would like to record info about if and when you sign up or log in so we can improve our advertising experiences. Helps us keep the. Uh, oh. Rather not. Let's uh, do a search for Antarctica. Faces and beings. Cosmic disclosure. Great stuff. Today on Cosmic Disclosure, we're with Tim, a tactical advisor from Germany who analyzes and suggests various strategies in relation to extraterrestrial groups in contact with Earth. Also joining us today is Captain Randy Kramer, who claims to be the public spokesperson for the United States Marine Corps Special Section. Welcome, gentlemen. Claims Thank to you. be. What? We're going to have a really dodgy. intriguing episode today mm. talking about bases and beings in Antarctica. So, Tim, let's start with you. What do you know about Antarctica with some of the bases and beings there, some of the history? Yeah, so my knowledge about Antarctica um, is from documents and it ends kind of somewhere in the 1960s. So Germany in the 1930s, 1920s, they were really interested in the now called UAP phenomenon. It was then the Germans at that time had missions. They went to India, to different other parts, Tibet, and they were doing all this esoteric research, which was kind of popular at that time in Germany, much more popular than anywhere else in the world. And they came to the conclusion that before there was some kind of major magnetic pole shift, different continents looked differently. And they were assuming that Antarctica has, had been some kind of continent with a much milder climate and having a extraterrestrial race that lived there and originated there. So that was kind of interesting to them. Um, and one of the reasons to go to Antarctica in order to 
A, find whatever's left there and B, place a basis. And the documents say and state that especially the SS um, had some departments that were done doing research on UFOs. Um, we know the story about this. these uh, from the British called them Foo Fighters um, appearing everywhere in the Second World War scenario. And Admiral Dönitz at that time, he got the task from uh, Hitler to build in a basis down in Antarctica, which he did. And they went there. It was especially the SS that was doing that. The Germans also sent some, the so-called Schwabenlander, which was a, a ship that the only aircraft carrier at that time had some aircrafts on it so they could you know explore antarctica but especially the ss did a lot of ground work down there and at some time when the end of the war was coming and it was you know expectable that germany is going to lose the war at least in europe and, and germany could not be saved anymore himmler himself he had built kind of the first breakaway uh, nation ever occurred in, in, in the modern times because he, he was actually second man in, in the state after Hitler, but he, you know, kept all the technology for himself and the SS and they kind of built the first, you know, black budget programs at that time and tried to ship everything down to Antarctica. The Americans have some of the submarines, they have found them. They also found material for nuclear, for the nuclear bomb, which seems to be a German invention. They seem to have worked on that. Also a lot of um, scientists from that time were pretty deep in the, uh, you know, nuclear uh, research. From that, I guess, the American nuclear uh, program emerged and um, that's where they went, pu putting all people down there. I also think that from everything that I've gone through that Heinrich Himmler, you know, the Americans seem to have not caught him. There is a, you know, a photograph which shows him dead on the, on the ground, which kind of look a little bit like Himmler. Um, also put like the, the famous glasses on his eyes and his dead body. The story is that Himmler died in the interview. He killed himself self, while all the other military people are, you know, interrogating wow. him. So the documents seem to say that Himmler took his chance to escape from Germany, put everything and all the technology on those um, on the on the Kau class submarines, brought it to an Antarctica. Hitler, in his last days, got um, the information that something was going on. Mm -hmm. You can, in his last will, he was super furious. In his last will, he ordered to have Himmler killed, actually. And that's where the story went. That's mm. what I read. How many people were actually shipped over there to Antarctica, would you oh, say? Oh, yeah, interesting. So the Germans um, had a mission and a program where they were systematically looking for orph orphans. 
Orphans, so, yeah. yeah, often. So people who have no family, they ha there was a program where they uh, where they artificially tried to raise children for for Germany. They took those because they actually have nothing to relate to. Right. And they sent them down there as well as a whole lot of therapeutes and psychologists, right. mostly females. So you have a lot of names. Why, why is that? Why is that? Because so the documents seem to say that there's some kind of portal or something that extremely changes the perception of reality and they needed stable people down there so they put all those female therapists and psychologists onto those ships and submarines in order to preserve the sanity of the of the personnel Tim, most of the people think it's a polar cap so how did they get in there number one and how did they form and get all the people on so they seem to have used a special class of submarines um, which uses um, special state-of-the-art technology at that time in order to go very very deep i think it was almost double the depth of a uh, conventional submarine it was inside the so-called Führer convoy which was you know the collector or the the class they used that to transport material technology down there and so from the document documents they went down there carved something it kind of created a subclimate so it's not freezing cold in there just like maybe an igloo like or an igloo, something right. yeah mm -hmm. so they build up on that so randy what do you think about that how did they uh terraform transform that area underneath the ice caps yeah my understanding that's basically correct uh some of the ice shelves you know are a thousand feet thick mm -hmm. so to get under them you would have to at the time you would have had to have a submarine that could go you know 800 900 over a thousand feet deep which is at the time would be ridiculously deep and then came up in what were natural ice quays you know caverns that had sort of hollowed out a little bit and then used steam to just make them as big as they needed to be and then if you've got a Imagine you come into a underneath into right. an ice cave and you steam out the cave so it's got a hundred foot ceiling and it's several hundred feet wide. Well, the ice structure of the whole thing would keep it from collapsing. Yeah, it would be like an igloo. It'd be like sixty degrees in there or something like that. And you'd be out of the wind and the sub-zero temperatures and the stuff that kills people up on the surface for sure. So why Antarctica? So to my understanding, um, there's something about the polars of this planet which makes Antarctica interesting. I think the f in the first place, they thought of um, Antarctica being the lost continent. Um, and that raised, you know, the question, what's down there and what can we do with this? And also they needed a place where they could, you know, build a base that is basically unconquerable. Um, so a lot of lots and lots and lots of technology that they um, went through in in World War Two, they brought down there. They took the time and you know the the position that they had there in order to build it, to restructure and finalize it. And um, I mean, everyone who can look up things on Wikipedia, they will see that there's this Admiral Byrd uh, incident right. where the U.S. 
brought a lot of material and personnel down there and they had this uh, encounter with those flying machines. You said earlier um, that the Germans were going down there because of not only that, but because of an extraterrestrial existence. Could you elaborate on how did they know that and also what are these flying machines and who is operating them? So they were doing lots and lots of research in esoteric terms and also uh, extraterrestrial um, technology back in the, in the 1920s, 1930s. Basically, there seems to have been some kind of species that once was there. I don't know. Maybe you know something, Randy. Who was down there? It seems to be, you know, way back, way right. back. Yeah. Ancient times. Very ancient times. Right. So who were flying these craft? Are you saying the Germans were doing like alien reproduction vehicles or was this from the species there? And maybe you can elaborate on this, this little war we had down there, this little attack. Yeah, I don't know exactly what happened there. I know that um, those craft that they built, the, the documents seem to say that people can get into in there they made them you know they they could operate them um and at that time um it seems that have that they have perfected the weaponry on those crafts i have no you know proof to whether germany was in contact to any any non-terrestrial species or not at that time i assume because the world war ii is so important mm -hmm. and we know that there was presence all over the place mm -hmm. observing what's happening that i mean it would be logical that any of the species there that have show some invasive you know um uh, directive um Characteristica that they would contact Germany, right. but I don't know. Do you know something? A little. Tell us about that whole conflict that was going on there. Sure. So I was called Operation High Jump. So the mission itself was supposed to take three or four months. They get down there, heavy losses, have to turn around and come back. You know, within three weeks, mm. uh, according to the interview that was done in. Um, It was Argentina, a uh, newspaper magazine that interviewed Admiral Byrd after that, and he said something to the effect of, I don't want to alarm anyone, but the next war will be fought by vehicles that can go from pole to pole, you know, at extreme speeds. That's a famous quote. So essentially what we understand happened there, they went down prepared with what we had. Uh, some things popped out of the water, cut one of the battleships in half, right. uh, and essentially did so much damage in about five minutes that they were, oh, yeah, we don't know if we can keep doing this and head to turn around. Now, there is another, um, another incident that occurred with that. There was an air crew of a plane that was sent to fly over Antarctica oh to take a look at it. It was a flight crew that was all from Oklahoma, and there was a sort of a mysterious you know, crash or the vehicle failed or something. We're pretty sure they were shot right out of the sky. So there's a report on that, but of course it was, you know, oops, we had an accident, and this poor crew, you know, who was all guys from Oklahoma, died there. But we're pretty sure that that was also uh, in line with that. So we know that Somebody knew something and had the hints and the rumors that there was something down there. What everybody knew at the time, I can't say for sure. 
but the goal was hopefully let's get down there quick before they've really established themselves and they've got any kind of military buildup. But they had just enough ships, you know, it only takes a couple of ships with a death ray or a particle beam, you know, to fight a 1940s, you know, Navy ship. Yeah. So it didn't go very well. So to my knowledge, the Americans, they have um, detected some of the submarines mm -hmm. before they could uh, enter Antarctica. Absolutely. And the Russians, they came in a little later. Yep. They had the information a little later. They came to Berlin. Had uh, they found all those documents, mm -hmm. and there were things about Antarctica, and that's how they gain gain knowledge. Do you know if there was alien or non-terrestrial presence um, in Germany at that time? Well, I mean, there's just what, you know, we've heard or got from the intel that we got that was a combination of some people from the Tool Society and some of, you know, the different esoterics, you know, SS Nazi types who were working together yeah. were establishing a protocol similar to actually what Aleister Crowley was doing with um, Jack Parsons and another friend of his. A very interesting sort of parallel in two very different ways. So they were using basic psionic telepathy to communicate, get information, but they were practical. They were like, all right, give me some, I want to know how to build a rocket. I want a rocket fuel equations. I want, you know, they got very specific because these were scientists who were asking the questions and ended up getting some very forthcoming information. We feel there's some vagueness about that because as we have understood over decades, just because someone shows up and says, I'm an Andromedan or I'm a Pleiadian doesn't mean that they are. It means they say that they are and maybe someone reports that they are, but that might not actually be where they're from or what they were doing. So we have that vague information, but there, there were certainly, I'm not so sure that they had a physical presence on the ground at that point or that like what happened later on after World War II where we had ET engineers and scientists helping the Russians and or Soviets at the time and helping us and other countries. I don't know that they had that at the time. I would almost suspect if they did that they would have made more progress. Oh. Yeah. I don't know it either, so. Yeah. It seems like most most of what they were working with was still materials limitations. You have, you know, mid-20th century industry, uh, electronic equipment limitations. So there didn't seem to get any of the leaps that we got when the ET scientists came later and were like, oh, no, 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 your materials are all wrong. Good, they gave them wrong information. Ceiling, and it's several hundred feet wide. Well, the ice structure of the whole thing would keep it from collapsing you know it would be like an igloo it'd be like 60 degrees in there or something like that and you'd be out of the wind and the sub-zero temperatures and the stuff that kills people up on the surface for sure so why antarctica so to my understanding um there's something about the polars of this planet which makes antarctica interesting i think the in the first place they thought of um antarctica being the lost continent um, and that raised, you know, the question, what's down there and what can we do with this? And also they needed a place where they could, you know, build a base that is basically unconquerable. Um, so a lot of, lots and lots and lots of technology that they um, went through in, in World War II, they brought down there. They took the time and, you know, the, the position that they have there in order to build it, to restructure and finalize it. And um, 
I mean, everyone who can look up things on Wikipedia, they will see that there's this Admiral Byrd uh, incident right. where the U.S. brought a lot of material and personnel down there and they had this uh, encounter with those flying machines. You said earlier um, that the Germans were going down there because of not only that, but because of an extraterrestrial existence. Could you elaborate on how did they know that? And also, what are these flying machines and who is operating them? So they were doing lots and lots of research in esoteric terms and also uh, extraterrestrial um, technology back in the, in the 1920s, 1930s. Basically, there seems to have been some kind of species that once was there. I don't know. Maybe you know something, Randy. Who was down there? It seems to be, you know, way back, way back. Right. Yeah. Ancient times. Very ancient times. Right. So who were flying these craft? Are you saying the Germans were doing like alien reproduction vehicles or was this from the species there? And maybe you can elaborate on this, this little war we had down there, this little attack. Yeah, I don't know exactly what happened there. I know that um, those craft that they built, the, the documents seem to say that people can get into in there. They made them, you know, they, they could operate them. Um, and at that time... Um, it seems that have that they have perfected the weaponry on those crafts. I have no, you know, proof to whether Germany was in contact to any, any non-terrestrial species or not at that time. I assume because the World War II is so important, mm -hmm. and we know that there was presence all over the place mm -hmm. observing what's happening. That. I mean, it would be logical that any of the species there that have show some invasive, you know, um, uh, directive um, characteristica, that they would contact Germany. Right. But I don't know. Do you know something? A little. Tell us about that whole conflict that was going on there. Sure. So I was called Operation High Jump. So the mission itself was supposed to take three or four months. They get down there, heavy losses, have to turn around and come back, you know, within three weeks. Mm. Uh, according to the interview that was done in um, it was Argentina, a newspaper magazine that interviewed Admiral Byrd after that. And he said something to the effect of, I don't want to alarm anyone, but the next war will be fought by vehicles that can go from pole to pole, you know, at extreme speeds. That's famous quote. So essentially what we understand happened there, they went down prepared with what we had. Uh, some things popped out of the water, cut one of the battleships in half, right. uh, and essentially did so much damage in about five minutes that they were, oh, yeah, we don't know if we can keep doing this and had to turn around. Now, there was another, um, another incident that occurred with that. There was an air crew of a plane that was sent to fly over Antarctica oh to take a look at it. It was a flight crew that was all from Oklahoma and there was a sort of a mysterious, you know, crash or the vehicle failed or something. We're pretty sure they were shot right out of the sky. So there's a report on that, but of course it was, you know, oops, we had an accident. This poor crew, you know, who's all guys from Oklahoma died there, but we're pretty sure that that was also uh, in line with that. So we know that, 
somebody knew something and had the hints and the rumors that there was something down there. What everybody knew at the time, I can't say for sure. But the goal was hopefully let's get down there quick before they've really established themselves and they've got any kind of military buildup. But they had just enough ships, you know, it only takes a couple of ships with a death ray or a particle beam, you know, to fight a 1940s, you know, Navy ship. Yeah. So it didn't go very well. So to my knowledge, the Americans, they have um, detected some of the submarines mm -hmm. before they could uh, enter Antarctica. Absolutely. And the Russians, they came in a little later yep. they had the information a little later they came to berlin had uh, they found all those documents mm -hmm. and there were things about antarctica and that's how they gained gain knowledge do you know if there was alien or non-terrestrial presence um in germany at that time Well, I mean, there's just what, you know, we've heard or got from the intel that we got that was a combination of some people from the Tool Society and some of, you know, the different esoterics, you know, SS Nazi types who were working together yeah. were establishing a protocol similar to actually what Aleister Crowley was doing yeah. with um, Jack Parsons and another friend of his. It, very interesting sort of parallel in two very different ways. So they were using basic psionic telepathy to communicate get information but they were practical they were like all right give me some i want to know how to build a rocket i want a rocket fuel equations i want you know they got very specific because these were scientists who were asking the questions and ended up getting some very forthcoming information we feel there's some vagueness about that because as we have understood over decades just because someone shows up and says I'm an Andromedan or I'm a Palladian doesn't mean that they are. It means they say that they are and maybe someone reports that they are, but that might not actually be where they're from or what they were doing. So we have that vague information, but there, there were certainly, I'm not so sure that they had a physical presence on the ground at that point or that like what happened later on after World War II where we had ET engineers and scientists helping the Russians and or Soviets at the time and helping us and other countries. I don't know that they had that at the time. I would almost suspect if they did that they would have made more progress. Oh. Yeah. I don't know it either, so. Yeah. It seems like most most of what they were working with was still materials limitations. You have, you know, mid-20th century industry, uh, electronic equipment limitations. So there didn't seem to get any of the leaps that we got when the ET scientists came later and were like, oh, no, 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 your materials are all wrong, your electronics are all wrong, you need, you know, you need fiber optics and alloys and lightweight materials. And so my understanding is they didn't have any of that at the time, which is why most of the vehicles were like flying tanks. They weren't very maneuverable and very agile. Tell me about the land part under the ice. When was that discovered? And was there extraterrestrial life there when they discovered it? Well, there's actually always been exposed land in Antarctica. So mm -hmm. the first expeditions that wherever went there, the farther inland they got, they came, they found natural water sources that were not frozen with fresh water, uh, rocky plateaus that were not covered with ice. So there's always been some exposed area there, and especially as you get farther down. Yeah. But my understanding, after the incident that occurred about a decade ago, we did send Marines to secure the situation. So 
as a Marine Corps officer, I do have to be a little careful to not say anything that could endanger a Marine's well-being in that situation. So I'll do my best to answer the questions in full that I can. But if I look like I'm pausing, it's because I want to make sure I'm not saying something. Sure, that, sure. Uh, but what I can say, uh, there has there's been an archaeological dig there for decades. So they finally found a something that was important, some a very large um, chamber that was size of a football field or something like that. Apparently it was filled with stasis pods uh, that were anywhere from like a meter, three feet in length to over 30 feet in length. So my understanding was because some of the Neshaban loungers are still down there, their inclination was this could be a biohazard. We need to burn this to the ground immediately. And then there was some, go, no, 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 no. This could be really important. This is an archaeological site. We can't just burn it down. And so that's when we had to deploy some Marines to make sure that they didn't just torch the whole thing. And from what we seem to understand about this, um, this is probably one of the oldest intergalactic spaceports on the planet is the one at Antarctica. We think that most of these stasis pods contain the... Uh, teleoperational biological bodies uh, for the personnel who were stationed there. As we have come to practice and understand in the work that we do, you don't always want to take a person, their physical, actual physical, biological, bacterial exposed person, and put them in a different environment and bring them back. And it turns out teleoperation of either mechanical drones or biological drones turns out to be one of the most efficient things to do because worst case scenario you can just throw the drone in an incinerator and burn it and then it's not going to bring anything back but apparently ets have been doing this for a long 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 time before we ever learned about it or started doing it so it would make sense knowing that that any of the personnel who were there so that they wouldn't be bringing contaminants back and forth would teleoperate a body and that for some reason they left them there in stasis pods in case of a, some kind of a later activation date. So what we've been finding is as we, you know, expose more thick ice, in some cases you've got, you know, hundreds or a thousand feet more of ice on top of this stuff, we're finding ships that are intact. We're finding ships that are in pieces. We're finding uh, dead bodies, corpses, things frozen in the ice. There seems to have been a event which occurred. That's why they had to shut the base down. There was some kind of, uh, you know, catastrophic uh, calamity that based on the damage that we're seeing, we don't know from the data that we're looking at yet, whether it seems to be a natural occurrence or an unnatural occurrence, because Someone can use technology that makes it look like an yeah. earthquake or, you know, natural occurrence or hurricane, tornado, whatever. So what I understand, they're, they're doing the work of piecing all that stuff together and trying to figure out what all of the information means while there's some competition, as always, over securing technology information or keeping technology information falling into an opponent's hands that you don't want to since we're not always friends. Uh, there's often cooperation for collective interest while still competing and spying and getting ready to stab each other in the back and so forth. Because What was in these stasis tubes? Uh, like I said, uh, perfectly preserved. Like, perfectly preserved biological bodies mm -hmm. that if something were to animate it or teleoperate it, 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 would, it would probably pop right up and move around because they weren't decayed, de decomposing. Right. They were perfectly healthy st cells mm -hmm. in perfect stasis. Do your people know who, what species 
Well, like I said, we've got pods anywhere from a meter to about 30 feet. So my understanding is they've identified no less than three or four dozen different species. It it was a, it was a straight up cross sectional Mm -hmm. intergalactic cooperative base where everyone was playing and participating. So it wasn't like one or two species. It was definitely a, a collective galactic operation. So, which from what we understand, most of the spaceports like that everyone uses them so that everyone can come and go and make use of resources, materials, whatever else they're doing here. Interesting. Were there any um, energy signatures there, like portals or other energy signatures from still operating craft or still operating buildings? Yeah, we we did find some operational jump gates. Um, Mm -hmm. A couple of them... From what I understand, they sent some drones through that didn't come back, and they decided not to send actual personnel through. And my understanding is they blew them up. They were just like, now we got to blow this up and make sure that nothing comes through here. Because you send something through a portal and it doesn't come back to you, right. that's usually a bad sign. So, <laughs> yes. yeah. My understanding, there was a few functional ones. And who knows where they go to, but probably whoever was using mm-hmm. that ship or that place had a jump gate that went back to their home world or something or maybe to a mothership somewhere far away hard to say so in 2015 about every world leader and also a religious leader had visited antarctica and uh, do you have any information you know what was so important about that i don't think i have all the information but i can tell you what i know uh my understanding is that at the time some uh, the local commander of the i think there's a naval base or naval station right there that's been doing you know ice you know digging you know samples for however long um so i'm pretty sure it was the base commander there who invited these people a little outside of the chain of command of his authority to do so. (laughs) Uh, So everyone came and apparently because someone, when commanders sometimes overstep their bounds, it's not necessarily because they're doing the wrong thing. It means that someone maybe they didn't get the advice on the psychological impact of people who haven't been briefed or conditioned about some of these things. We find that in the whenever standard soldiers, standard personnel, standard government personnel have encounters, you have these high, high, high percentages of people who panic, uh, go into you know states of shock. So I think, from what I understand, the base commander invited some people down ahead of a game plan without making sure that everyone had been cleared or prepared or without a proper briefing, and then was like, here, I'm going to show you some cool stuff, and you're all going to be really excited. And they were, but some of them were shocked, some of them were frightened, and some of them didn't handle it as well as they thought that it would. What did they see? I'm not sure what they showed. I'm not sure what he showed them. I mean, based on, again, what we know is there and the archaeological dig, there's a ton of information and a ton of, you know, whatever they've got going on there. So he was obviously felt that it was important for these people to see it, but I... I don't think it was through the chain of command that he did that. I think it was he decided to do it on his own. Yeah. And um, I don't know whether he got moved to a new job after that, probably. but So one thing that is significant about Antarctica is that we have this Antarctica contract that makes it kind of a neutral zone right. for everyone. And every bigger nation has their bases down there. Yep. The Russians are doing like 
digging huge holes in there, putting all those cam cameras down there, and they are finding something. So there is an enormous importance about Antarctica. We just not know what is down there. Now, there are some intelligence officers that we have spoke to that say, you know, if we would come forward and say, what is in Antarctica? You know, a lot of these people uh, get killed for going public with it. So I'm going to ask you, what is in Antarctica? Well, sure, good question. I'll answer that in two parts. First part is for decades, we've had issues where depending on who you are and what you say and whether you're cleared or allowed or not, whether you disappear, die in a car accident, commit, commit suicide in a hotel room. So it wouldn't be, we have a history of making certain people disappear for saying certain things. And it more often than not, it has to do with whether that person really should be the person to say that. So certain people could say something about aliens or UFOs, UAPs over the years. Nothing could happen to them. Certain military intelligence scientists, astronomers say something, their lab gets burned down and they disappear. So there's always been an inconsistency with who gets punished for saying something and who doesn't. So this is one of those situations where yeah, it's delicate. There's a lot of things happening down there that could tip the sway of panic, you know, in the world if, if too much information was to come out too quickly or to shock people in a certain way. We think that information should come out rather than it be kept secret. But we also understand that you don't just want to you know, go blah and scare people, the crap out of people. So I think that when you talk about Places on the, on the planet and old archaeological sites or old spaceports, this is probably the biggest one, the oldest one, which means it's got the most materials to go through and look at and the most square footage to go through and look at. And as we learn, the older something is, the more likely you've got that, you know, one in a hundred chance that you're going to find that real rare item of technology or something that you know it's like oh i found the most amazing thing you get the rosetta stone or sort of the equivalent of it by getting it first so anytime there's like old stuff you know it's like you want to go check that out and grab well, it like, well like the the ufo soft disclosure they're doing now i mean there was something recently in the media about finding a civilization and our Antarctica, and that was not everywhere published, but it is out there. So I, I see that as a soft disclosure of, you know, getting things out there besides the point of them running down there and pillaging everything and, and putting Egyptian stuff down there and mine stuff there to confuse this, the poor scientists that do go in there, which, right. but um, go ahead, Tim, what, what do you have? What's your yeah, just, Rennie, have you interacted with uh, the ice Germans in any way? No, not that I not that I'm personally aware of. No, uh, the only interactions that I've had would be meetings where I had to be present and maybe they were present, but I've never like sat down, chatted with them, had a beer or anything. So, so yeah. do you know anything about their military down there, their agendas or something? I know a little bit about some of their ships and how they're designed, and I've talked to a couple of people who served in the service there and so have told me some you know things about the tech and the stuff that they use can't verify all of the things that i've heard so i wouldn't repeat a bunch of them but it's um 
they've. I, I, I don't want to share I, it. I don't want to offend you when I say this, but they've taken a very German approach to doing things. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel very German, so I'm okay. With that. <laughs> so you know, they they the ships are very heavy duty. They're very thick. They're very hard. They're they're very solid, but they're not as fast. They're not as maneuverable. You know, we tend to want to have something that's much quicker. They want things that are really durable and solid. Do they still use the swastika? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Now there, now from what I've seen, there is another uniform uh, that they do wear sometimes. That's a toned down thing, and you literally, you know, have to look at the patch to see where the little teeny swastika in the patch is, so that it's not blazingly in front of everybody. So they're trying to say, you know, you know, no, we're not really. Nazis, but we are. You know what I'm saying. So they put a little teeny one on the patch there. So there's a couple different uniforms that they've used. I don't know what's current. So with the climate change, it getting warmer, how does that affect Antarctica and some of the uh, things that are there that will be exposed? Well, from what I understand, there's already a pyramid that's been exposed by that. That some pictures have been taken of. It's just going to expose everything at some point. So at some point, whatever's under all of that ice is going to melt away, and it's just going to be out there in plain view for everyone to see. So it's one of those things you could only keep it a secret for so long at this point. So I, I don't think that they're going to keep it a secret until the whole thing's melted. But at some point, we're going to be able to see it all. I did hear of a craft uh, that is sticking out of the ice quite dramatically that they're trying to hide on uh, Google Earth and other imagery three, using three-dimensional uh, imagery and stuff and trying to cover it up. Do you know about this? Yeah, so recently there was a photograph of what they're calling an ice ship that looks like a, a boat that's been frozen in the water. My understanding is that they changed that, so instead of it looking mm -hmm. just like a cylinder tube on the ground, they made it look like an icebreaker or something that's there. But yeah, my understanding is that's literally something sticking up out of the ice that is not an icebreaker, is not an actual see you know right vessel. right and also a scientific team did discover flying over this giant crevasse this hole yep. in the ground can you tell us about that yeah there there is a hole uh at the south pole and there's one at the north pole so the one at the south pole is the one that people know the least about or mm. probably have seen the least of the the northern one is the one in which old sailors when they would talk about approaching the edge of the world and would see this, you know, long edge of the ocean falling down into nowhere. Well, it's big enough that if you're on a boat, you can't see end to end, right? So it would seem like it stretches endlessly, but it doesn't. It just goes in a big circle. My understanding is that the water underneath the ocean, which according to NASA has more water than the oceans have it. So there's more water on the planet under the oceans than we have in the oceans. Just try to grasp that for a second. And that there's essentially a recycling process. So as water at the north falls down into the hole, it goes down into the bottom, which then just pushes back up in the oceans and you know balances out the, the water levels. So, But all the drawings and so forth from sailors back in the old days saying, it's the end of the world. No, nope, that was the hole uh, at the North Pole, which is in the middle of the water, as opposed to the one that's South Pole that is in the middle of a landmass. But apparently they're the most direct ways to get to the Agartha network is through those holes. Not saying that they're not 
guarded. You can just go down there without someone saying, what are you doing down here? But those are, my understanding, the most direct access points, which is why the base was built down at that point right next to it so that there was an easy in and out between the species and the Agarthan network and the base on the surface. And whatever was happening on the surface at the time, it was so long ago. My understanding, like 400, 500,000 years ago, maybe longer. As we wind up this episode, Tim, Please tell us the significance, you know, of the Germans basically discovering Antarctica and building up Antarctica, some of the first people. So I had conversation with other species talking about the significance of Germans for the evolution of the universe. And we could agree upon that Germans, because of their significance for the timeline of the world, they kind of have their own karmic healing to do um, and they have to play an, a role in order to bring this chaos of the timeline of the evolution of humanity in some healthful order in some way or another. So Germans seem to be a nation or like a group of people that actually had a very profound connection to nature and a super high spiritual potency and um, in those conversations that I had with other beings I think that this is the way Germans have to come back to that to feel their uh, connectivity to the world and play a significant part in the uh, spiritual evolution of this world and this is a task that they need to do at Another, at one point or another, spiritually. Yeah, how fascinating. I really believe that as well because the extraterrestrials and the Germans were some of the first contact, you know, and they picked the Germans. At least in uh, modern times. Right, yes. in modern times, yes. correct. And I also think that um, the, there was some kind of potency to the world war in terms of energy that could go in the, in the right direction. Um, if you see the swastika and its actual meaning of being, you know, children of the sun in some way or another, that is something that might be the first idea and the foundation of what could heal that emotional and spiritual part in, from the past. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Tim, and thank you, Randy, for being on the show today. Thank you, Emery. Thanks for having me. I'm Emery Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Until next time. Next on Cosmic Disclosure. So what we were trying to do is open a portal in the fabric of space in order to travel. Germany was probably the first nation in modern history that had experiments on time travel. Their approach was to use high voltage in order to melt down the fabric of space. I said, no, where where were you born? He says, very difficult to explain because I was born a thousand years into the future. I came back in time. We didn't open up a, a time portal. We opened up a dimension.
on Cosmic Disclosure, we are with Tim, a tactical advisor from Germany who analyzes and suggests various strategies in relation to extraterrestrial groups in contact with Earth. Also joining us today is Richard Doty, a retired counterintelligence agent who served in the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Welcome, gentlemen. Today, we're going to be talking about portals and time. So we're going to get a U.S. perspective from you, Rick, and from you, Tim, of course, a German uh, perspective. So, Rick, you've seen so many documents about this type of subject. What could you start off with? Well, during my counterintelligence uh, career, I was assigned to Area 51, and one of the operations that I uh, perfected a counterintelligence operation for was uh, an operation or a project uh, that was run by the National, uh, National Laboratories in investigating how to time travel, whether it was feasible, different methods and different procedures that could be developed to move from one area of time to another area of time. And so I actually developed the counterintelligence operation based on the project. Uh, most of the time when we get these projects in that we had to do a counterintelligence operation for, you just read the summary, the objectives, but not everything. I was so fascinated by time travel that I read the entire document, even the scientific portions of it. So what we were trying to do, what the United States government was trying to do, is open a portal or a tunnel in the fabric of space in order to travel. And I'm not disclosing anything that's classified anymore. Most of this has is, is already been written about. Um, theories have been uh, I mean, taught in a, a college class at one at time. But what they were trying to do is perfect procedures. They used high-energy uh, lasers. They used um, magnetisms, high-energy, uh, large ma magnets to shoot lasers and other things through a portal or create a portal, open up the time, and then try to figure out how to keep it open. And they were using different sheaths to put in there to try to keep it open. Uh, they were trying to uh, then maintain it with gases. They used, I know, argon gas and a number of other different types of gases they would pour, uh, send through these portals. And it, it actually worked. They were able to open it. The problem was to keep it open and to prevent any damage or injuries to anything that go, went through there. And they were using cockroaches to put through there. They were using uh, mice and rats and, and I, I believe some other animals. But nothing, uh, they couldn't perfect it at that time. But later on, they developed different techniques and different methods that were able to do that. What year was this? This was in the 1980s, early to mid-1980s. The project actually started back in the 60s. I think, believe San Diego National Laboratory started a project, and it was in the uh, elementary stages back then. Uh, scientists were able to document on paper how to do this, but then when they were trying to perfect it in reality, so to speak, uh, they ran on all sorts of different obstacles, weather, atmosphere, uh, all sorts of things that were preventing the, the time portal to open. They actually opened some uh, but uh, it, they couldn't keep it opened uh, in order for any, at least humans, to go through there. And when they opened it, there was a lot of different things that had happened. When you open a portal, there were small explosions that are occurring. There were distortions of the atmosphere, distortions of the viewing 
uh, as you looked into the portal, there was so much distortion. And one of the things they dis- determined was they didn't know that this portal was going forward in time or back in time. And that was a big question on their part. They were perfect, trying to perfect things that could determine this, whether it w- they were going forward or backwards in times. And eventually they did. They were able to perfect a way to open a portal. But the only problem is the portals were only open in the early days for a millisecond. And later on, they, they kept them open for a few seconds. And they perfected something called a, a nuclear injection where they had a small, very small nuclear detonation that they fired into. They fired this ball of nuclear material, I don't know how they did it, into the portal, and there would be a small nuclear detonation. That seemed to open it. And as they tried to put the sheath in there, and the sheath was made of some anti-magnetic material, it would stay open for a few seconds, and it would close and destroy that sheath. Wow, fantastic. When I was there in the early 90s and was part of that project, they also were using special alignments. They found out that they had the Earth and the different types of space alignments because there's ley lines also in space, and they still did not perfect it at all uh, where they could do it. So how about you, Tim? What, What have you heard and what have you experienced and read about? We know that Germany was probably the first nation in modern history um, that, you know, had experiments on time travel. Everyone knows that um, the theoretical physics that time can be approachable dimension, that is something Germans came up with in the 1920s, 30s. They did experiments on that. I think about the 1940s, um, their approach was to use high voltage in order to melt down the fabric of space, which can be used in order to, you know, um, move temporal dynamics, but it's absolutely not stable. And it would also be um, pretty toxic for everyone who stands around that kind of field. So I'm pretty sure that they did not succeed in any way at that time in the 1940s to make it stable. What Richards was talking about, people have used that, the same mechanics, um, allegedly, you know, way back in the ancient times, where we find all those ancient sites that were indeed aligned to the different lines and star constellations, and they used the natural occurring um energies in order to open certain gates so you were talking about the 70s 80s i guess and you were talking about the 90s i guess it was about the 2000 2010-ish years where the greys decided to give at least a certain group of people on earth the ability to have a stable and functioning technology i'm pretty sure that that is you know, highly classified in terms of not everyone having access to that. So I think that the Greys took that pretty seriously and um, made access to only a very certain amount of people or a group of people, and they exist. So there are people that are going through these portals And they are also in a future version encapsulated in time of the Earth. 
And their mission is to have a look on how Earth is developing. And as far as I know, they are active in this time right now, even present. Yeah, I believe they're picking specific organizations and people that are going to be responsible for utilizing that. Yeah. Now, are these portals also in space, not just Earth? So one thing I'd like to add is that temporal dynamics is capable of being weaponized. So one can build a very highly efficient weapon using temporal dynamics. And I think that is the reason why Grace decided to give it only to a very specific group of people. Rick, could you add to that? Well, one of the things that was developed during the experiments in time travel out at the Nevada test site in Area 51 was a peripheral part of the time travel projects they developed. Uh, they found that they could develop a energy weapon, a high energy weapon system. It wasn't the objective, but while they were experimenting over these years, they realized that there were some things that they could do to take advantage of these portals. They were in the process of developing, when I left, uh, an energy weapon. Was that, exactly a side, what, was that a side effect? Was this, this energy weapon was opening a portal? Absolutely. It was opening a portal. And so um, when I left, they were trying to perfect it. And I think probably over the years, they, they, they might, might have done that. Uh, when I worked for a, a private a laboratory in, in Texas, we were able to look at some of the things that DARPA was doing in that area of perfecting this type of energy weapon. Rick, they're experimenting with opening a portal. How do they know what's on the other side? Well, one of the uh, objective was to determine exactly that and how they would measure it or how would they, they would see into it. So they had subcontractors working on that too. And so they developed some techniques and some equipment, which probably are still classified. I don't want to go into that part. Of it. But they had actually equipment, something similar to an oscilloscope that was projecting they could determine wave patterns, the normal earth wave patterns. And when they opened the fabric, there was a strange wave pattern detective that we couldn't duplicate anywhere else but looking into that portal. So when this strange wave pattern appeared on their scopes, they knew that they'd opened the portal. Now, the problem was, at, in the early stages, they didn't know where that was going. Was, it, was that going back in time? Or was that going forward in time? Now, eventually, they took this to another location in a mountain in California. And they duplicated. And they realized that the wave patterns there were different than the wave patterns in the in desert of Nevada, at the Nevada test site, which was the main uh, location that they were testing this. So then they figured, wait a minute. Why is the wave pattern different there in California than what we had? And bingo, they figured that's going one way because of the altitude or the area of the, of, of that where they're doing it in. And in Nevada, there, it was going someplace else. And, and when I left, and even, even when I worked for the private laboratory, this was being developed rapidly. What do you think, Tim? Yeah. So we all know that um, dimensions are units or a way to measure the location of something inside of space. So if we have three dimensions, we can, by using a triangular method, 
we have a way to figure out where in, in space something is located. So every particle um, in physics has a specific location, a specific position where it is. It's the same with temporal dynamics as using time and um, temporal factors as another dimension. The problematic and confusing thing is the geometric way how to see temporal dynamics. Because uh, every particle inside of a fourth dimension of temporal dynamics is also located to different other positions inside of this temporal dim dimension. And that also, you know, brings some challenges in order how to manipulate time because everything has an effect on the path.